This is part two of Get Ready for Sunday and our look at the scripture for Masses celebrated in a Catholic church near you on August 22nd, 2021. In this part of the preview, I'll be talking about the first reading from the book of Joshua in the Hebrew scriptures and the gospel, the conclusion of the Bread of Life discourse in St. John's gospel. There are only two times in the three-year lectionary cycle that we read from the book of Joshua, the fourth Sunday of Lent in year C, and this Sunday. Joshua was the successor to Moses in leading the Israelite people into the promised land. The book of Joshua details the stories of the Jewish people crossing the Jordan River and their re-entry into the land of Canaan. Re-entry, you ask? It is the understanding of this people that this land was the land given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob centuries earlier by God. Consequently, the battles with current inhabitants are over a reclaiming of land rather than an initial conquest. Joshua led what would be a very contentious reclaiming. This people was not welcomed. The region of Canaan was inhabited by many polytheistic pagan tribes. The Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Moabites, the Amorites, and the Philistines, to name just a few of the more easily pronounced groups. Some of these ancient tribes had powerful armies, and they all had one thing in common. None of them liked the Israelites. They did not intend to leave their land just because some god had supposedly brought this new people home. As in the flight from Egypt and the wanderings in the desert, God did continue to protect his people during this resettlement. At one point, five Amorite kings combined forces to defeat Joshua and the Israelites. Famously, Joshua asked God to extend the day in order for them to defeat the combined Amorite army. The book of Joshua covers the arrival of the Jewish people in their homeland, their crossing the Jordan River, the conquest of Jericho and its great walls, the capture of the city Ai, and very importantly, the division of Canaan into the lands for the 12 tribes of Israel. Joshua is well regarded by Jewish history as a wise and devout leader of this young nation. He had the difficult task of filling the very large shoes, or probably the very large sandals, of Moses. In many respects, although he is rarely credited, he proved to be a more effective leader than Moses. As an example, once the Jewish people had crossed the Red Sea and began their desert journey, according to God's instructions, all males were required to be circumcised. And Moses uh, kind of forgot about this requirement and put this obligation on the bottom of his stack of things to do. But not so for Joshua. Once the young nation had crossed the Jordan River, Joshua, under God's direction, made knives out of flint stones and circumcised the people. And the reference to the people in this passage, of course, is to all the males. It was, shall we say, a delicate time in the young nation's history. It is also a possible explanation of why they needed to stay in camp for 10 days before moving on towards Jericho. The book of Joshua is not without controversy. 
It details the Israelite conquest of the inhabiting pagan nations and the use of harem warfare, or total warfare. The term refers to the Israelites' command to kill all inhabitants, not just the men, but women and children as well. There have been several theological speculations attempting to justify how a loving and merciful God would allow such a practice. Perhaps the most familiar of these conjectures is the explanation that all of the many pagan tribes in the region were in fact also descendants of Abraham, and they were well aware of their own disobedience to their unique call to holiness. Over the centuries they began worshipping idols, and involving themselves in savage worship practices, including, it seems to many scholars, the Canaanite practice of sacrificing newborn infants. This particular theory espouses that God used the Israelites to exact his justice upon the pagan nations who had strayed so egregiously. The passage we read this Sunday is at the very end of the book of Joshua. It is what some scholars refer to as Joshua's farewell speech and the covenant ceremony. Joshua had been leading the Israelites for 40 years. During his time in power, the Israelites had not completely displaced all the pagan tribes, and just as God had predicted, the Israelites began to intermarry with their pagan neighbors and soon had returned to the worship of idol gods. It is a pattern that recurs throughout the Old Testament. For his farewell address, Joshua gathered the entire Israelite nation at the town of Shechem. According to the Hebrew Bible, Shechem was the early capital of Israel and is located in what became northern Samaria. Today, it is around the Palestinian city of Nablus. It is believed that after God told Abraham to leave the land of Ur, he settled in the area of Shechem. Shechem is located between two mountains that form a valley and a natural amphitheater, which makes it possible for a speaker to be heard by everyone in the valley. With Levite priests holding the Ark of the Covenant and standing in the valley, Joshua divided the young nation half stood on one mountain and shouted the curses of what would happen to them if they failed to follow God, while the other half stood on the other mountain and shouted the blessings they would receive if they remained faithful to God. For his farewell address, Joshua has regathered the tribes at Shechem and reminded all the people about all that God had done on their behalf and how he would continue to bless and protect them if they remained faithful. Because idol worship had once again crept into their culture, Joshua famously presented all the Israelites with a choice. They could choose either loyalty to the God of Israel or fall into the service and fealty of the many idols worshipped by their pagan neighbors. Here then is a reading from the book of Joshua. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel at Shechem, summoning their elders, their leaders, their judges, and their officers. When they stood in ranks before God, Joshua addressed all the people. If it does not please you to serve the Lord, decide today whom you will serve, the gods your fathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose country you are now dwelling? As for me and my household, 
we will serve the Lord. But the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord for the service of other gods. For it was the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, out of a state of slavery. He performed those great miracles before our very eyes, and protected us along our entire journey and among the peoples through whom we passed. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. The Word of the Lord the psalm response will be familiar to you from two weeks ago we recited the same refrain and the first strophe on the nineteenth sunday in ordinary time as well this week the psalm links the choice presented to the people by joshua with the choice jesus presents to his followers in today's gospel passage the words are taken from the thirty-fourth psalm i'll include the refrain only at the beginning and the end taste and see the goodness of the lord i will bless the lord at all times his praise shall be ever in my mouth let my soul glory in the lord the lowly will hear me and be glad the lord has eyes for the just and ears for their cry the lord confronts the evildoers to destroy remembrance of them from the earth when the just cry out the Lord hears them, and from all their distress he rescues them. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and those who are crushed in spirit he saves. Many are the troubles of the just one, but out of them all the Lord delivers him. He watches over all his bones, not one of them shall be broken. Taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Today's Gospel reading brings us to the final installment of the Bread of Life discourse, which we started several weeks ago. Remember the setup was Jesus' miraculous multiplication of the five loaves and two fish that fed more than 5,000 men and all those who accompanied them. Jesus has revealed his divinity. After the feeding, John writes that the crowd wanted to carry off Jesus and make him their king. Then the hard teaching, this rather long discourse, began. Before we look at the stark challenge Jesus presents to his disciples, I need to backtrack in the liturgical calendar to the gospel for the 20th Sunday in Ordinary Time, which most years would have been heard at Masses last weekend. It was not proclaimed because the solemnity of the Assumption of Mary fell on that Sunday and altered the ordinary progression of the calendar. So here comes the gospel you didn't hear last Sunday as a starting point. Why bother? Because these two gospel passages, one follows immediately after the other, are so tightly bound together. Understanding the latter really does depend heavily on knowing the content of the former. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, 
Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. The Gospel of the Lord. That is what you ordinarily would have heard last week. I need to point out a few things about its content. This selection, which is liturgically the third installment from the Discourse on the Bread of Life, is for me the highlight of the whole progression through the Discourse. We can't ignore it. In previous passages from the Discourse, Jesus made a comparison of himself and the manna from heaven which sustained the ancient Israelites during their forty years of wandering in the desert. Jesus takes care to point out that all of those ancients who were kept alive in the body by the manna did in fact ultimately die. They did face mortality, as all flesh does. Jesus tells the crowd who followed him from across the Sea of Galilee, those who ate the miraculous meal he provided to satisfy their bodily hunger just the day before, he tells them that he is the new and better bread, also a heavenly gift. Their task, if they want everlasting freedom from hunger, and here Jesus is speaking of the more important spiritual hunger at the core of every human, their task is to consume the totality of Jesus. It is a hard teaching. Literally, Jesus is telling them they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. When they quite understandably recoil at this thought, Jesus does not back off. He does not soften the teaching. Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Jesus has now doubled down on this command. He precedes it with the double amen. Amen, amen. At that time, in that culture, was the most emphatic version possible of, hey, pay attention, this is serious stuff. And his language is powerful. The word Jesus uses for eat in this passage is the Greek verb trogeen which literally means to gnaw, to chew on. Picture a predator pulling the last close-to-the-bone meat off the bone with its teeth. The Greek word here translated as body is sarx, which can mean nothing other than the physical body. It is not ever used symbolically. Had this been a symbolic reference, the word would have been soma, also meaning body, but with many symbolic uses. Do you get a sense for what Jesus told these early followers? 
sink your teeth into the human that I am. Consider how they had been brought up on, and were living their whole lives enjoined to obey, the dietary laws from the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Jesus, fully human, does not qualify as one of the animals of which they were allowed to eat. There is no record of him having cloven hooves or multiple stomachs requiring chewing a cud. It was fine to dine on sheep, goats, oxen, steers, and wild game like gazelle and deer. Other animals are forbidden. Even to touch the corpse of another animal is forbidden and drink his blood? Under Mosaic law, any consumption of animal blood is strictly forbidden. This had to be turning their stomachs. Imagine how they'd react to some of the adventurous eating shows on the Food Channel today. But the words of Jesus are plain enough. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Taken literally, that is, pardon the expression, hard to swallow. What might that really mean? Consider the expression body and blood. Scholars tell us that it is an idiom meaning the totality of the person. It represents all that one is. All the signs that Jesus has done, he has done in and through his own body. In order to continue his work in the world, his disciples are called to do the same. To be empowered and sustained for such radical self-giving, one must feed on Jesus. The phrase, flesh and blood, also resonates as a reminder of the kind of sacrifice thought to be potent at the time of an animal first slaughtered, flesh and blood, and then shared in a cultic meal, food and drink. Jesus demonstrates the same pattern, executed on a cross, flesh and blood, then sustaining his disciples in the Eucharistic meal, food and drink. The implications of this are challenging to would-be disciples even today. The strength of the language chosen is so bold and striking that it carries the message that to attain the eternal life promised, one must feed on Jesus in this way, not simply believe in him. Remember, in John's writing, believe is an active verb encompassing physical action. It is not mere intellectual consent. An expansion of the eating metaphor comes as Jesus notes that just as we and what we eat become one, so too do Jesus and those who feed on him become so intimately and lastingly one. A mutual indwelling is established in the Eucharistic meal. This new bread from heaven has not merely rained down from the sky. This bread, Jesus, comes from the very being of God. Those who consume this meal are destined to unite with being itself. A last thought here. Note the statements about true food and true drink. 
Another translation renders those as food indeed and drink indeed. My personal conjecture is that the modifiers are saying more than this is really food and drink. I read into this construction a meaning more like it's food, but it's a different kind of food. Our gospel passage for this, the 21st Sunday, picks up where last week's ended. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Many of Jesus' disciples who were listening said, This saying is hard. Who can accept it? Since Jesus knew his disciples were murmuring about this, he said to them, Does this shock you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life, while the flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who would not believe and the one who would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. Jesus then said to the twelve, Do you also want to leave? Simon Peter answered him, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. The Gospel of the Lord. First, and this goes back to earlier selections in this progression of Sundays, please notice the progression of the murmuring. Earlier, it was the crowd who murmured who expressed great doubt in what Jesus was teaching. Later it was the Jews, that is, the term John uses to identify the religious authorities of the day. Now it is his own disciples from whom the murmurs come. At each step, as Jesus intensifies his message, every new level of intensity brings the murmuring closer to Jesus. Even those proclaiming trust in Jesus are shaken. Ever happened to you? Happens to me. At the same time the murmuring gets deeper into those following Jesus, the crowds, the number of those who continue following him, diminishes. First, we have 5,000 men and their companions listening to Jesus teach. The following day, we have an undetermined number, but clearly fewer than 5,000, who follow him back across the sea for more bread, for another sign. Then the number is reduced further to what can fit inside a synagogue. And finally, he turns to the twelve. Ever see the faith community shrink as the level of challenge increases? Probably the understatement of the day was from the disciples and followers who said, This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? Jesus goes with the flow, asking, 
Does this shock you? Jesus asks, What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus is making two points. He is revealing again his divinity. His ascending is a reference to what will happen after the resurrection, and the reference to where he was before is a statement of the mutual indwelling of each person of the Trinity. So what do you think? Would the people who are having such trouble believing Jesus is God's self-giving have an easier time believing if they witnessed his ascension? Maybe, maybe not. So much comes down to appearance. First, there was the picnic of thousands, immediately after which they asked for another sign. Let's go backwards in this liturgical year a bit. On the 14th week of Ordinary Time, we read in Mark's Gospel about Jesus being rejected in Nazareth, his own hometown. Two weeks ago, we read from John 6, verse 42, and they, the Jews, said, Is this not Jesus? Do we not know his father and mother? Then how can he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus is fully human. That is his appearance. He is common folk. His parents are no power couple. That ordinariness has common people confused, and the same ordinariness allows powerful people to be dismissive of him. Does the ordinariness of our religious practice make us dismissive of its purpose, that is, a true intimate relationship with the one God of the Trinity? Does the relatively easy availability of the Eucharistic meal make us devalue or lose entirely the true gift this sacrament is to build that deeper, more trusting, sustaining, loving, mutual indwelling? Keep that understanding of the mutual indwelling of the Trinity at the top of your mind. There are difficulties encountered in fully feeding on Jesus. They center on fear, lack of faith or trust, which can only be built from experience, reluctance to let go of temporal or material attachments. Faith itself is a gift. The capacity to pray, the capacity to Faith, gift. For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. There is a clear choice presented here. Does one trust that Jesus will provide the sustenance he promises? Or does one allow fear, confusion, apathy, or anything else to break the relationship? This passage tells us many of Jesus' followers left, unable to absorb this teaching. Others stayed. They might not have understood fully what Jesus was teaching, but because they had made a commitment to him, had spent time with him, listened to and spoken with him, there was a relationship sufficient to allow trust to carry them further along their journey with him. 
St. Peter said it beautifully when Jesus asked the twelve if they also wanted to leave. Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. I pray you are able to pray in community this weekend. Show up at Mass in person or online as you are able. Please guard the health of your body and your spirit. And may the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, come upon you, comfort you, and remain with you always.